Hi everyone, welcome back to TVP. This year is our 10th birthday, believe it or not. Not as a podcast, but as a value franchise here at Schroeder's. We wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table. Usually on the pod, we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise. But in this mini series called Meet the Manager, our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini series on the off weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal. But we hope you enjoyed this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Meet the Manager. Our first host is Pete Trekenovitz, a CIO of Global Assets at Reddington. Pete advises a range of wealth managers, insurance companies, and public sector pension schemes with a combined asset of more than 400 billion pounds. He also has oversight of Reddington's 25-person research platform across both manager and asset class research, and is ultimately accountable for the asset class implementations that are recommended to clients. In this episode, he interviews Simon Adler, portfolio manager on the value team who joined Schroeder 15 years ago. Pete will ask Simon about Simon's journey to becoming a value investor, value investing's landscape and challenges today, the challenges of price discovery and the drivers of return, Simon's oft-use fashion statement analogies like wearing a snorkel mask while cutting the grass as an example to being willing to be different, and finally making money out of terrible businesses and a house analogy to understanding value. Enjoy. Okay, Simon, uh, morning. Lovely to be talking today. Uh, one of the things I was interested in is how you got into value investing, your career. Was it one of those things that you were interested in the philosophy and pursued this as a route? Or was it much more, you know, you, you, you just ended up here by chance? It's a good question. Um, and thanks for your time. I think there's a, a range of factors. I think deep down at a core, I am a value investor in my life. I live a kind of value investor lifestyle. You know, I've only just sold my 15-year-old Skoda. Um, I buy everything secondhand. I just can't help myself. Yeah, I, I love eBay. I live the- on eBay. I literally live on eBay. My wife thinks my wife thinks I'm like a surfing eBay king. Yeah. Do you come up? Do you go to her going, well, we do need this, don't we? Because it's a, such a good deal. It's like, no, we don't need another <laughs> chest of drawers. <laughs> yeah, well, that is an actual, that's an actual problem. I want to, well, that, that feels like something we should come back to in the context of, of, of investing. <laughs> or to do the surplus chest of drawers that are good value. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I think for me, it's, it's a kind of, it's what I am, as it were. If I look at my family upbringing, you know, there was never any kind of financial waste. It was always getting a deal, buying things cheap. So I think that's how I was kind of brought up and how my kind of DNA is. Then when I started at shows, I was in a very, very fortunate position that I started on a team that had growth investors, the likes of Richard Buxton. We had uh, mid-cap investors, someone like Andy Bruff. We then had yeah. some core investors, soon Ofker, Andy Simpson. And then we had the value team, you know, at that point, Ian Lance, Nick Purvis. Yeah, Kevin Murphy, and so 
I was able to look around at all of these styles <clears throat> as I developed my career. And I think over time, but also quite early on, I was quite instinctively drawn to value. Then having had that, I think, kind of DNA aspect and the draw, and then going and reading the academic work that, in my view, is extremely persuasive towards value, it, it was kind of yeah extremely compelling to me the stars aligned effectively. yeah the it stars kind of, that's exactly it resonated and then you then you did the background work yeah and then the problem with that of course is that because i agree with you i feel very similar on those points but mm. uh something resonates it seems very compelling and then you go through these huge periods yeah. you know where stuff doesn't work or it's very difficult um and has that has that dented your enthusiasm has that sort of dented your conviction at all no i think Having done the academic work, I think it's extremely clear that that is part of the parcel of doing value. And one of the reasons why so few people do it, I kind of, I wasn't a professional investor at the time, but I grew up investing, you know, 50 quid I'd saved up at the dot-com bubble time. So I was very aware of the dynamics of what was going on at that point, albeit in a very unsophisticated and pretty embarrassing way. So I think I always knew that was a case with value investing. And then I think the academic work is very, very clear that the long-term returns are there, but it comes with trust. Significant drawdowns. And that's part of why no one's willing to do it. And I think it's also part of why, as I look at the value investors, I think the ones that are able to remain true to it, there's a number of criteria, but one of them is a personal willingness to be a bit different. You know, there's a number of ways in my personal life in which, you know, I might be a bit different. So, you know, when I cut the grass, I wear basically a scuba diving outfit because I don't, <laughs> I don't like the grass getting up into my nose. I'm a bit allergic to it. That's an amazing visual. Yeah, yeah. Right my now. wife's got some photos of me doing it on a hot day, wearing effectively swimming trunks and, and snorkeling gear. You know, I, I use something called a Nubrella, which I'm sure you know a Nubrella, which is a umbrella that straps to your back as a rucksack and goes backwards and forwards. So you don't have to hold it with your hands. That sounds Genius. Interesting. I, yeah. the words, took the words out of your mouth. <laughs> um, Again, so, another another very strong visual coming through yeah, for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but but for me, those things are things that make life better. It makes life better if I cut the grass wearing my snorkeling gear, <laughs> and it makes life better if I'm going shopping and I come back wearing a new umbrella instead of trying to you know balance the umbrella <laughs> under my chin. And but I don't. I appreciate the fact that it might make me look a bit weird, <laughs> but I'm comfortable with that. And so I think that willingness to say, I think this is the right course, but I know that others may look at it and say, yeah, you've lost your your you know your mind. marbles, yeah, yeah, your mind. I think it's part and parcel of it. So I think you have to be willing to look wrong for a period of time. And you, I mean, we talked about this before, and I know this has probably been done to death in your podcast series. Mm. But if you know, if you think about those influences of of the last decade or so, you know, you think about very you know sustained low interest rates, yeah. very very high levels of liquidity, cheap money washing around, you know, meme stocks, retail investors coming in through the COVID pandemic, um, and then I, I guess also the relentless rise of passive investing, which comes with its mm -hmm. own uh, sort of inbuilt momentum. Which of those do you sort of place most blame on? for the challenging environment that, you know, or indeed changes in investor behavior. Yeah. I think there's parts of probably all of that. I think Liam Nunn, one of our co-managers, I think always says entirely aptly that with each bubble, there's a kernel of truth. Yeah. There was a kernel of truth in the dot-com bubble. These companies were changing the world. 
and there was a kernel of truth with the low interest rate environment that the lower the interest rate went the you know the higher the multiple could academically be applied to to the higher quality and higher growth companies the problem with these kernel of truth is that they they get out of hand and become a bubble and i think the other aspects that you mentioned things like etfs um the momentum uh, aspect i think what that did is extend the spring yeah so i think the bubble was created with a kernel of truth that there's the low interest rate environment we then i think went miles beyond that um and that yeah it was partially greed and fear which is what always drives markets but partially that flow of money that just went went on and on and i mean i i did many many meetings in 90 sorry 2019 2020 where people said value won't come back will yeah. they you oh, know, yeah value we, is dead you we were having we were oh we were i mean you know we were having these conversations and it was almost so sort of like self reflective because you're sitting there saying that we think this stuff works because of behavioral reasons and then you're having this extremely behavioral conversation <laughs> yes. and yet you almost can't step back from it far enough to say do you guys not see that the very fact you're having this conversation the very fact we're the very fact we're having this behaviorally driven conversation about is value broken does value not work anymore these are all reasons why over time all these things work yeah couldn't agree with you more uh, but but it's amazing that you know i suspect you were holding out and arguing back that you know here are the reasons but i feel like the whole there's whole portions of the market that just said that rolled over yeah in those conversations yeah. well and i think the bit that i woke up to well, there's probably two bits that i woke up to from the momentum perspective one was you know every time someone fires a value manager and buys index or fires a value manager and buys growth. Or hell, you know, you know, fires a fires a, a, a value manager basically does anything that isn't isn't value. <laughs> yeah. They're effectively putting momentum in, into all the you know, stuff that is working. The second piece, which I don't know whether you've ever seen anything on this, I keep looking for someone to do a really amazing piece of work on this, but it's just the amount of you know daily, weekly, monthly flow that invests in the market passively. You know, effectively, whether it's you know whether it's DC funds. Whether it's people putting their, you know, kids' ices, jices, whatever, to work, it, it just feels like the the market as a whole has become that much more of a momentum market driven by those type of factors. Yeah, I haven't seen any work on it. I think it would be very interesting. The thing that I find interesting, kind of, as we look today, is it still feels like people have two views. One is this value bounce back was a flash in the pan. Yeah, it was just a yeah. one flick back perspective. And the other one is that really growth is still winning. And clearly you can pick your time frame to prove whatever you want. And we're probably as guilty of that as value investors as anyone else. But over the last three years, if you just felt what, or if I think of what it's felt like to me, it's felt like it's values had some good quarters and some bad quarters, but it kind of nets out. When you look at the numbers, values absolutely smashed it. Yeah. It's doubled the market and proper, proper value managers have typically done much better. But but even that hasn't seemed to change the conversations. Yeah. And I guess one could take that two ways. If you if yeah, if one's being wants to find encouragement as a value investor, it shows you how much more there might be to go. Yeah. That's what I hope is the right yeah, way. Yeah, well then if you look at I mean if you look at, you know, say the long short um numbers that say like AQR puts out mm. I mean, they're saying, yeah, yeah, sure, we're off the highs, but we're still 
what mid mid nineties in terms of uh, percentiles of, of of cheap versus expensive. Yeah, that's the same. We look at other bits of data that are indicating exactly the same stuff. That we kind of yeah, if you track back to 2018, 19, we got down to a point pre-COVID where we were about in line with the peak of the dot-com boom. Then COVID happened and we kind of we got lurched down. All the way through, yeah. Yeah, to, to levels that had never been recorded before. And now we're kind of back to where we were before COVID. So pretty much of, in line with, with the tech, yeah. tech boom, yeah. And yeah, three years later from the peak of the de- dot-com peak, I think the MSCI World Index was down 45% and value was up. And five years later, MSCI World Index was still down and value was up significantly. Yeah. Now, lightning doesn't strike twice. But but despite that and the evidence being pretty clear-cut, I think, it still doesn't feel like the overall market is persuaded. What, what does it sound like when you speak to people now? I mean, I think the interesting thing we have, that again, it's one of the perspectives that, that I, I think makes your job more challenging is – you know, you're living this and it's, this is kind of your shot, right? This is mm-hmm. your, you're all in on this. Yeah. And that's not, our, that's not our style, right? So we, we will absolutely have, have value managers, you know, much like yourself, but we'll be partnering those up with someone who has got more of a momentum based approach, someone who's quality growth investing. Um, and, and when you blend all that together, you know, you talked about the you know quarters up, quarters down, all the rest of it. You know, essentially, it it looks it looks like it should. You know, it looks like a relatively smooth ride that's that's adding value to the market through time, and that works nicely. So we're, we're don't get me wrong, we're still very much subject to the what I call kind of line item fascination. Um, you know, which is where you're having a conversation with a client and you know nine out of ten line items are up or in line, and one is down six percent or something and they point at that one and go what's that yeah uh you know why is that doing that and we so we still we still have a lot of that um but i think our our clients increasingly have seen that blend of things working well and we don't really try to time styles we're not trying to lean in and out of styles we're trying to say we think these things are all good things to have and good things to have sort of in balance yeah the irony of that is i think that's what makes our job easier actually because as you say, on the one hand, we've, we live, you know, I've committed my career to this as have the rest of the team. And, you know, we will live and die by how that does. But on the other hand, we've worked very, very hard to ensure that our client base have done exactly what you've done, which is they say, well, we'll choose you for our value bit or you with a, you know, a couple of others mm-hmm. for our value bit, but we're, we're match you up with some quality, with some growth. And yeah. actually that's, critically important to us we don't want to manage 100 percent of anyone's money because we want to get that blend we want to be sorry as part of a blend which means that we can focus day in day out on trying to pick the best stocks and being, value. The, being the best implementation exactly. effectively of how you see value playing out and yeah. i want to come to that in a few minutes there's one more piece i just want to pick up which is thinking about again just the last challenging period i guess one thing you are you asked how do i feel i mean one of the things i get frustrated about is when you see managers taking bets in areas where maybe you'd argue they haven't necessarily got an edge. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that playing out over the last, as say, over the last 10, 12 years. You know, you've got a situation where the US was persistently the most expensive market. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm guessing since the GFC, the US grew from what, 50, 55% of the market up to the to the mid-high 60s in terms of the global, um, global indices. So you the the bet the sort of international value bet isn't working 
-hmm. And so it gets worse and worse for people. Value managers often making end up making big country and sector bets. And those of course come with their own with their own challenges. Currency is is obviously another one that just comes out of the country bet because we don't tend to see a lot of people hedging currency. Mm-hmm. How so how do you see that? I mean, do you think do you think those are things you actually have an edge in? How do you try and contain those types of bet when when the value appears to be there? Mm. I mean, I think it's one of the great challenges. Um, and it's extremely difficult because as you say, if you can have you know, the US has been a unbelievably large part of a global benchmark. And if if we went down to the street and asked people, you know, you're investing globally, what percentage of your assets would you want to have in any one market? No one would say 65% in mm. one country. But yet that's where we kind of stand. I don't know what the number is today, but it's somewhere yeah. 65, 70. Yeah. And at the same time, the US for much of that period, in our view, has been an extremely overvalued market. So the way we deal with that is, firstly, we we try not to take a top-down view. So we don't say we think the US. Well, I've just said it, but we don't say we don't make decisions based on we think the US is expensive and we yeah. think Japan's cheap or whatever we might have thought historically. I'm not making a current view, obviously. But what we're actually trying to do day in day out is find cheap ideas around the world. Yeah. So when we screen the the market, we screen the world for the cheapest ideas, we we show which countries they're in and we look at what our portfolio looks like so that we can say, okay, well, suddenly in the cheapest part of the market, there's flashing loads of ideas in this country, but our portfolio has got none there. Yeah. Let's go and look there. Okay. So we try and from a bottom-up perspective ensure we're focusing where the cheap areas are, but the real challenge gets to and this is where we we've been for the last number of years that there's just not many ideas in the u.s yeah and so we then go and look at the u.s ideas because we don't want to have a dramatic difference to to what people would anticipate and then we can't find that many ideas right and that was a real challenge for us and, and i think it some people believe it impacted our performance so we didn't have much in the u.s and the u.s was doing well i think the more sophisticated analysis showed that actually the cheapest part of the US wasn't doing well either. Right. Actually, the US was doing well driven by five stocks. Yeah, yeah. Or 10 stocks. Yeah, because the bottom quintiles just continued to cheapen up. Basically. Exactly. So, the so yeah, if people say to us, why didn't we go into the US more wholeheartedly? Why didn't we have a benchmark weight in the US? And actually, the analysis we've done on whether we should have done, because we didn't, was that actually it wouldn't have helped us. Interesting. Really, because the cheapest bit of the market didn't do well. So... It's extremely difficult, those areas, but what we try and do is remain focused on the cheapest companies in the world, start with them, and then do as much work as we can to try and filter out the dodgy ones. We won't always get them right, and then end up with as broad a portfolio as possible. And that's something I think we're, I think we're doing better today than we were doing three or four years ago. Interesting. Trying to have as diversified a portfolio as possible within the cheapest bit of the market. Yeah, you know, we would love to have. I sometimes think about there's a dominoes rally. Yeah, you know, what we don't want is a domino rally portfolio where you knock one domino over and everything goes. Yeah, we want to have as many independent dominoes as possible. Now you're never going to get forty or fifty independent dominoes, but psychologically and philosophically, the more independent the risks are, the the better is the way we think about it. And that makes me think about something we were talking about just as we came in, which is about sort of price discovery and how value is realized in the market and i I listened to a david einhorn podcast uh, a few weeks ago which i definitely recommend to anyone um, who hasn't heard that yet but the point he was making 
was that the number of people that are playing the market in your way mm-hmm. and driving price discovery in cheaper stocks has has really fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we see that as well. And I, we'll, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. And the point he was making is that you've, your thesis can't be built around, you know, this company trades at a PE of five. It does pretty well for a little while and it just revalues to a PE of 10. You know, you need to have more catalysts, more ways for that value to actually accrue to you as an investor. And that feels like another, to me, it feels like a, another positive form of diversification across the portfolio. How, how, how are you thinking about that as an issue? Yeah. So, and, I mean, and do, do, do you buy that that's, that that's true, that there's just not, you know, that you have, have to think about it differently now? Um, I'm not sure I totally buy it. I think I haven't seen any proper evidence of that. Um, clearly there are anecdotal examples one could take on either side. Um, you know, I can, if I think of large parts of our portfolio that's done pretty well over the last few years, lots of that has happened through old school price discovery as right. well. But having said all of that... But the flip side is, I guess, the, the if you look at the expensive side of the market, maybe that was where the price discovery became equally zero, right? Because you had, you know, all this kind of meme stock silliness and, and you know, retail chasing things. Yeah, yeah, and, I, yeah, and that's a fair point. And I, but the, the thing I was, I was going to come to, which is if we just zoom out all the way back and look at the long-term sources of return in stock markets... Mm-hmm. You know, we both know very well that a very substantial portion of the return is the dividend yield yeah. that you get and that reinvestment of the dividend yield. And so I think in that respect, David Arnold was absolutely right that that is an important part of what the long-term return for clients are. And if you're buying stocks in the cheapest part of the market, you get a big yield. If you're buying stocks in the most expensive market, the market you're lucky to get any yield at all. So we absolutely subscribe to the view that that is an important part of the return because that has always been an important part of the return and and we consider it. But what we don't do is become kind of slaven to it, as it were, that we will only buy stocks with this level of yield or with this level of cover or this level of free cash flow. But what we do every time we look at a stock is, well, what you know, what is a number of uh, valuation metrics. So we might look at it on EV notepad price to book and free cash flow yield because we know that yeah. free cash yield is very important. And is that free cash flow yield going to go on acquisitions? Bad news. Or is it going to go on dividends? Great news. Buying back shares. Only good news if the shares are cheap. Now, if we own them, we'd like to think they were cheap, but, but only if your balance sheet can justify it. And so the use of that free cash flow is also as important in many respects as the level of free cash flow. And again, I'd come back to the diversification point. We don't want to have a portfolio where the only source of return will be dividend or equally the only source of return will be the PE going from five to 10. We want to have a, a, a blend of different ways in which we will generate returns for our clients with different risks as well. And, and we hope that across the mix over time, they deliver. The, the dividend conversation is interesting. We We always kick this around a lot with clients so is income investing a thing you know is should you just be able to take a share of your price return deliver that back to yourself as income and it shouldn't make any difference and and of course the other interesting point is that if you were a really good capital allocator then there's a strong argument i think as you know as warren buffett has made over time that you know you shouldn't pay dividends in fact you know the best use of my capital is to reinvest in the business i'm going to find better ideas than you do so isn't there a risk that businesses with good dividend yields are almost 
predetermined to be bad capital allocators? I think it varies. So, yeah, we're in a business, which I'm not allowed to say on here, which is the world leader at what it does. Now, what it does is not hugely exciting, but it's something that is absolutely critical and everyone will use over time. And they have never paid a dividend in their history. And we own them and, you know, we think their return will come from... And you're getting delivery. paid there through the free cash flow, basically. Yeah, and, th- and the fact that they invest it at high levels of return, yeah. they sometimes buy back shares. Equally, we own banks, which is, a you know, we could have a, a huge session just on them. Yeah. But, you know, I think the return there is going to come from the yield. Yeah. And those yields are very, very high and they're very attractive. And we want that to be a source of return. You know, we manage an income fund as well as a team. And on that income fund, we say, we want three types of return here. We want capital return. We want return is the yield today and growth in that yield per unit because that's what the end client actually cares about. But what we don't say is every single stock has to be every one of those. Yeah. So we have some stocks that are capital returns, some that are income returns. So I don't think necessarily a high dividend yield stock is a poor capital allocator. However, if you've got a stock that has a very high yield that could generate much higher returns by investing in their core business, we'd be the first to encourage the company to drop the dividend and invest in the core business because that would generate, to Buffett's point that you raise, a better long-term return. Interesting. And I, and, and I guess because, as you say, you've got, you've got pockets of money that are doing different things, so you could, yeah. you could effectively do that and still, still maintain your, your investment objectives. The one thing I was thinking about coming in is, Long only versus long short mm. in value, and part of the return that we saw from from some of our managers over the last uh, twelve eighteen months was really driven by doing more long short in their in their in their books was more driven by the very very expensive stocks cheapening up. Of course, uh, how do you feel about that? You know, do you, do you not feel like you're kind of sometimes playing? Table tennis in one hand behind the back, or whatever. Well, I guess table tennis bad analogy. You only need one. Only need one hand. Yeah, yes. But you know that 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 you're yeah. you've got one hand strapped behind your back because you can't go out and short those those crazy expensive stocks. No, I don't feel like that. I personally am not keen to play table tennis with both hands <laughs> on the bat. To use your analogy, I think we stretch it too far now. Um, the I wonder well, if I could get a PhD. I've had a PhD in in bad analogies. That would, I would be I'd be the world master. <laughs> that's of like bad me analogies. with jokes. My best jokes are always accidental. I only realise <laughs> afterwards. Oh, that's quite a good pun. But the big challenge I think on the short side of as a value investor, so shorting expensive stocks, is what we saw in the last decade, which is yeah, you can be wrong for a long, yeah. long time, yeah. and that can be longer than you remain liquid. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you're long only. You're not levered. You're just long only. You're investing in shares that you think are undervalued. You know, through most of that period, you actually generated a positive return being a value investor. It just wasn't nearly as positive as as it was being in the market. And so, yeah, that was a source of some comfort for us. Not a huge amount, but some comfort that, you know, over most of that period, we'd done a reasonable job, just not as good a job as the market. Whereas if you'd been short the expensive stuff, and you're continually having to post margin and then how much longer can you continue doing that? You're hugely exaggerating the peaks and troughs of value, which I'm not, I think there is a place to do. I'm not against the people doing that. I just don't think I'm personally well set up to do it. And if that brings us, of course, to the point of client expectations, how long 
clients, hold patients, and so on. I mean, what's what's your expectation for you know if things aren't if things aren't great? How long the average client will stick around? And and uh, you know what's do you find that frustrating? You know, what's your experience with that? Yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. So the first thing I'd say is I think we are, and everyone says this, but I think we're genuinely fortunate with our clients that we've got a really good client base that understand what we do and why we do it. And that comes from the sales team at Schroeder's that do a really good job of ensuring that people that buy our funds are buying them for the right reason. And we work pretty hard to try and keep that the case. But that doesn't mean that every client has stuck with us. Um, and we did lose some at, at the trough, which is very, very disappointing because that mm. money rate of return is poor. We did also win some then. Well, and the biggest challenge there is that behaviorally, they'll probably be the ones that struggle to come back. Yeah. Or they well. come back at the worst time. Yeah. Whereas the ones that you win then, you know, really have got, you know, great circumstances. So, so I think getting the right clients is absolutely crucial. Then it's a case of delivering on the expectations. So if we are do, having a difficult time because the cheapest bit of the market is having a difficult time, I think most clients are willing to understand that. If we're having a difficult time because we've had a very, very high prolonged period of poor stock decisions, so within the cheapest bit of the market, we've made lots of mistakes, far more than you can ascribe to bad luck or, or timing, then I think you can't expect clients to stick around for that long. So I think it depends on why you're having a difficult time. Yeah. Um, but it also comes back to the, the policy which we try and pursue of, extreme honesty with clients and extreme openness of, yeah, this is where we've done well. This is where we've done badly. And we've had a number of clients say to us over time, you know, we've never had conversations like we have with you in terms of your openness about mistakes. And I don't think that's, I, well, I don't really know what that's about in a sense in terms of what they have with other people. But from our perspective, we just want to have that very, very open, honest relationship because then when it's difficult, you have the greatest chance of, of, of keeping the clients when they could generate the best returns by staying. Yeah. 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 No, it is. It's a nice thing that comes out of it. Of course, it's, it's experience that's, you know, won by having the mistakes to talk about in the <laughs> yes, first place, yeah, which, is the, yeah. which is the frustrating bit. Yeah. But, uh, and uh, just looking around, I mean, it must, do you get the sense if, you know, it just feels, and what's the right word? There's just less competition around in your space. I mean, you've just seen, if you think about boutique formation, it's something that we're really interested in as, you know, we're, we're, we're investors. We believe in the kind of concept of the boutique premium. You know, we think, we think boutiques are a, a great way to, to invest. You look at the boutique formation, you know, you've seen almost no boutique formation in Japan. You have very, very little uh, boutique formation in value investing. Does that make it easier? Does that make it harder? What do you see when you look around the landscape? I think you'll have a better idea than me, actually, in a sense of the landscape. As we see it, we totally agree with what you say. It appears that there are less people doing what I'd call genuine value. Yeah, it's been a lot of star drift, which you alluded to earlier. But the people left doing genuine value is is pretty limited now. Um you know, I think that is a group As of in a people. lot of people that maybe drifted more into kind of what they call GARP. Yeah, quality value or, or GARP or, you know, benchmark value. Yeah. yeah, all kinds of different 
derivations of it or they've left the industry or yeah. they've their firms closed them or forced them to, yeah. to drift yeah. for whatever the reasons are or the flows have gone against them so badly there's very few people left i think now doing genuine value um does that make it easier or harder not well on that don't. front it's got, got to make it easy to to, to, to raise money hasn't maybe it? It, maybe it makes it easier to raise money i don't maybe it makes it harder to generate the returns if einhorn's right um hope he's not uh but i think it it's remarkable really you know 10 15 years ago no one would even have a conversation as to what the definition of value was everyone understood it, it was crystal clear there were lots of different people doing it whereas now I think you can count on one hand the number of people in the UK doing genuine value. Yeah. I think that's extraordinary. I mean, how do you see it? Well, I promised I wouldn't talk about that to, to myself, not not to you, but I <laughs> promised I wouldn't talk about the whole kind of, you know, value of IP, valuing intangibles, okay. you know, how how do you calculate value? Because I think, I, actually, I think that the, the market has come, I think the market has come to something of a consensus, which is probably a, a slightly fuzzy consensus but it's yeah. it's you know it's the you know value is a thing you can calculate it you need to cut it as i think with lots and lots of different things you know risk measures for example you know you need to you need to have multiple lenses for these things you yeah. know you see a lot of people running around you know var 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 when they're talking about you know value risk when they're talking about about risk or you you look you isolate your your definition of risk to one measure i think you're always going to have a difficult time i think it's the same thing right so to me it it's got to be about more than price to book. It's got to be um, about a broader set of understanding of what value is, but how people particularly weight those and what methodologies people use. You know, some people, you know, some amazing things. People go back and, you know, attribute, um, you know, IP and intangibles across every balance sheet back to, you know, 1926 yeah. or something. I mean, it's you know, wonderful to see that, see that kind of um, diligence in yeah. people's process, right? Um, so I think I think there has been a bit more of a, yeah, maybe something of a steadying around around the philosophy. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that is an important area that I think we would say has changed over the last 20, 30 years. That, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there weren't that many businesses with huge value that wasn't reflected on their balance sheet outside of branded businesses that, you know, Warren Buffett obviously did very well with. Yeah. Whereas I think now it's an important part of the of the market. When we look at various bits of academic work on, you know, for example, value versus growth, it is clear that there is a big difference between the price to book of the most expensive and the cheapest. And so then you think, oh, golly, you know, I can understand why that would be a difference because of what we just described and what you just described so well. But if you then say, well, let's ignore that and just look at free cash flow yield, or PE, or any one of a number of fundamental metrics that cut across those uh, accounting differences, it shows the same thing. It still looks the same, yeah. It still looks as extreme. So I think if we were in a place where it only looked extreme on price to book, I think you could pretty credibly say that that opportunity is passed. More limited, yeah, or more limited. Or yeah. more limited. But I, the work I've seen and, and the work we've done doesn't suggest that's the case today. But that's again, and I mean, we've talked about it a little bit. But again, I just think that's that's good diversification, right? You know, you diversify your signals, diversify the portfolio. Yeah. You know, diversify the 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 catalysts and the way that that value is going to return to you. Um, that, to me, I think is something that that we see that you know we're pleased by. I think we do see processes involving you know evolving in the market and people people being more thoughtful. And, and to your point, it's interesting you know, what you said about clients and conversations because I think we would probably agree that. 
some of our more 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 and most thoughtful conversations over the past five years have you know been with those parties that are having the most challenging uh, performance. And that and that and that's great. You know, it's very good to see people being self-reflective and able to discuss, um, able to discuss mistakes and challenges in the market. I think that you know, through time, that that really sets you up to have a long-standing, successful relationship. Yeah, and hopefully also gives you a chance of being the best you can be. Yeah, if you try and get better over time and try and do that on data and evidence, that gives you your best shot of ending your career having done as good a job as possible. Whereas. I think if one ever risks complacency, it's not trying to learn, not trying to get better, not trying to develop. Yeah, um, I think it's a very core culture amongst successful people around the world. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. One, maybe one final thing I'm keen on because we, we talked about. Well, I think I mentioned GARP and so the drift, drift to yeah. GARP. Um, and I won't, I won't get into my. Won't get into my feelings on GARP because another another thing I promise not to uh, <laughs> not to be mean to GARP. But when you're fishing in in you know the deepest value stocks, mm. and that you know as 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 some other market uh, proponents have 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 advocated is is probably where the most clear value at the moment appears to be. Mm. Um, that the the bottom quintile appears to be cheaper than it usually is versus many other quintiles that are not so. Screening for quality in some way, protecting yourself against a real deep trash has has got to be more on your mind. How how do you try and you know put some kind of quality screen over things without turning it into kind of garb as people would call it? Yeah, well, I think that the biggest protection you can have is ensuring you're remaining in the cheapest bit of the market, because then whatever you're putting out, whatever your process is adding to it. As long as you're in the cheapest bit of the market, you're not risking becoming GARP or QARP or whatever. So kick, kick stuff out of there, but just make sure you don't drift up into the other quintiles, essentially. Yeah, is I think the the most important way. And and then try and have lots of different ideas. I mean, no one likes to hear it, but you know, one of the stocks we made the most money out of in the last year has been the worst company I've ever come across. <laughs> um, I don't think I'm allowed to say it on here. Absolutely awful it's done multiple rights issues. It's gone bust over and over again. I mean, it's a total disaster. It had a rights issue, failed. The investment banks got caught on the hook with it, on the hook with it, sorry. So they ended up having to, they'd underwritten it, but had to take it up. And the shares kept falling. So we rung up the investment banks and we said, you know, we're buy it. I'm going to make up numbers. It was a, a euro. We're buying at 50 cents. Uh, no, told us where to go. Then fell to 70. Rung them up again. We're buying at 50 cents. No. Fell to 60, we're buying at 50 cents. And we bought it at a price that actually the public share price never even got there. Wow. Direct Amazing. off the investment banks. And it is a horrendous business. And it's more than doubled since then. Wow. And are you, um, are, have you now got out of that? Yeah, we're now out of that. Um, <laughs> okay, that makes me feel better. Yeah, that makes yeah. Me feel better. So we had a very conservative fair value something. But people don't like hearing that you can make money out of terrible businesses. Yeah. You can. But you have to have you have to be paying a penny in the pound for it. The other yeah. analogy I give is, yeah, you know, I used to live in Peckham in London. When I moved to Peckham, it was a value play. I mean, Peckham had one place to go to eat then. And I often say to people, if you take the area where you live, go to the worst street in the area you live, and then look at the worst row of houses in that street, and then you look at them and, he, and you know each one's worth a hundred grand, and there's one in the middle that has got 
dead mice, dead rats, graffiti needles, <laughs> you know, you name it, it is there. Red light. This is literally your house, is it? Yeah, 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 exactly. Touche. <laughs> um, and you can buy that for a quid. And you know that every other house on that row is worth a hundred grand and you're a builder and a surveyor and you know it's going to cost you two grand to put new carpets and repaint yeah, it. Yeah. Would you do it? Everyone yeah, says yes yeah, if they've yeah. got two grand spare. Yeah. And yet you've just bought the worst house on the worst street in the worst part of wherever. Yeah. And so for us, the critical thing is knowing the quality. Yeah. So you, we, we say very, very firmly, it's one of the seven questions we ask every company, you have to know the quality because if, if it is rubbish, you've got to make sure you're paying a penny in the pound. But Whereas it's about having that price, basically having that price discipline. Exactly. It says, okay, but but to your example, where, where, where you've invested, you stuck there and said, you know, we'll take it here. You weren't you weren't trying to sort of mess them around. You weren't chiseling yeah. the price as it went down, but you stand ready to buy at a price that you believe, but you'd had that price discipline in the first place. Exactly. And you have to stay firm to that. So, you know, today when we look at our portfolios, actually there's there aren't many of those really bad businesses in there because, you know, we do think that quality does have an influence. It is important, but the most important thing is price Yeah, and paying a low price. Yeah. Super. Well, I think before we uh, wrap up, I'm going to say thank, thank you very much for, for all the investing advice. I might not um, linger so much on, on the house buying advice, <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's, uh, there's sort of something in there for everyone. Um, it was really nice chatting to you and uh, yeah, I, well, I look forward to hearing how it hears myself. Thank you very much, Pete. And uh, yeah, uh, you won't be the first to have turned down my property advice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>